0: Hi everybody, Tom here. The following podcast was recorded a few weeks back before some news and rumors broke about the future of Straddle Launch, both the company and the airplane. Our interview is with some Scaled Composite staffers who talked about the aircraft itself and its first flight. Scaled is a separate company, and we did not touch on the future of Straddle Launch. We hope you enjoy.
1: Go ahead and take the speed up your number one now. Runway on like two seven three land green dot. Welcome, nice guys. guys.
0: Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot is sponsored by GE Aviation. My name is Tom Sharpentier. I'm Government Relations Director at EAA. Across from me, coming off the bench in his first
1: start, behind the mic. It is a Green Dot producer, normally. Uh, I guess today, Green Dot host and EAA's assistant editor, Ty Windish. And Ty,
0: today on the podcast, uh, we have couple of pilots who have been in uh, all over the aviation news lately with um, the uh, historic first flight of Stratolaunch, the world's largest aircraft. We have uh, Evan Thomas, who is the PIC of uh, Stratolaunch for that flight, and Zach Reeder, who is flying the uh, chase plane. So welcome, guys, and uh, thanks for coming on the Green Dot.
1: Thank you. Hey, thanks for having us. Absolutely. And I think the first question here is kind of an obvious one, but probably still pretty important. You know, how was that first flight for both of you?
2: Uh, it, was, it was fantastic. I, it was my first first flight, and you, this is sort of the way you, you want it to go. You want it to run smoothly and much the way you had planned it, and that's pretty much how it went. We, uh, it, for, for a lot of uh, intents and purposes, it was very like some of the simulator runs we've done. The, the profile ran through well. The, the airplane flew pretty close to how we predicted uh, so overall, we were very happy.
0: It, it's a um, it's a unique aircraft in that obviously in that it's so large, but also the the um, the kind of the twin boom design of it. I mean, you basically got uh, essentially two jumbo jets welded together. Um, I know that Scale Composites has built other aircraft, you know, where the pilot's sitting off center, but it's got to be. I mean, how far apart are those cockpits? It's that's got to be a, a, an interesting way to fly an airplane.
2: Yeah, you're you're roughly uh, a little over 55 feet from the the center line, uh, which seems like it's going to be a, a big problem. But the airplane uh, isn't; uh, it doesn't roll very quickly. It doesn't maneuver around uh, very quickly in the sky. So as long as you're keeping the roll rate slow, really the the being off center uh, for in the air is not so bad. Other than it's a little weird to look out. And see the other fuselage there flying in formation uh, with you. Coming into land, the, the biggest thing is uh, we had to pretty much train ourselves to not land on the center line. Yeah. Because you, know, <laughs> you don't want to be near the center line.
0: Well, oh, geez, you could have hired me when I was uh, learning to fly. I could have given you a lot of off-center line landings, <laughs> just as long as I was to the left, I guess, <laughs> or whichever. I guess whichever cockpit you guys are flying. But which cockpit do you fly? Yeah, from?
2: we're we're uh, we're all over in the right fuselage oh, okay. so on the okay. right side.
1: Oh, that is uh, definitely a a different perspective for landing, at least. And I think one of the things that struck me personally when I read about this right when it first happened is that first flight was about two and a half hours long. Is that correct?
2: That is correct.
1: So why such a long time in the air for the first uh, liftoff here for strata launch?
2: Well, for for the first flight of a big airplane like this, it's really not that unusually long of a first flight. Uh, we were happy that it went that long because that meant it all went well. Uh, Once we're airborne, of course, the whole point of a first flight is to come back to a safe landing. So we wanted to take our time uh, up in the air. So we we climbed up to 15,000. We ran through a bunch of uh, checks to check out how the airplane was in uh, pitch, roll, and uh, yaw and and get a good feel for it. Uh, Chase uh, was... Working around the whole time, uh, checking over the uh, the airplane, and then uh, we put the flaps down and repeated the whole series. And then we we spent some time uh, sort of pushing the the handling qualities a little bit uh, to to really get a feel for what it might be like in uh, in the flare and the landing. Did some simulated approaches, and then uh, basically did a big loop around uh, Edwards Air Force Base to come in uh, for a low approach and then came back around for, uh, the full stop landing. And in a, in a plane like this, it just takes some time. So it was, uh, two and a half hours for, for example, uh, we would do, uh, airspeed checks with, uh, our citation chase. Uh, so actually I can let Zach talk a little bit about, uh, the challenges of moving from one position to another, uh, in relation to this big airplane.
0: Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I was going to ask Zach. Um, the uh, you know we see uh, chase planes a lot in uh, you know in military and 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 uh, commercial flight testing and even some home builders you know uh, make use of a chase pilot. Uh, what are you doing on a um, on a first flight like this?
3: Uh, so the the big thing uh, for us on any first flight, not just straddle launch, uh, the chase plane's big job is to make sure nothing's leaking or on fire right at takeoff. So uh, you know as soon as the test airplane lifts off the chase plane's really the only, only people that can, uh, get a good look at it. So we're looking for stuff coming off or stuff doing, uh, unexpected things that would require the test airplane to come back and land immediately. And then once they're up at altitude, the, the big thing that's required is, uh, checking the airspeed and altitude. Cause we don't know what kind of static air the test airplane has. And then just generally looking out for other traffic and, uh, things that are going, uh, Unexpectedly, with the test airplane, the big unusual one for us is the airplane's close to 400 foot wide, and so changing from the left side to the right side normally is, you know, a quick wing flick back and forth, and it's like, you know, a long exercise uh, to get across. And we're doing airspeed checks. We pull up, you know, a beam in the cockpit uh, of the test airplane, which is normal, but uh, we're outside the wingtip, so we're a couple hundred feet away and uh you're expected to see two fuselages but the thing's so wide the second fuselage is hidden by the first and uh there's a lot of things that were they were kind of cool and unique about it but mostly it just took a lot of time to maneuver
0: and what type of aircraft was that was the chase plane
3: uh we're flying uh a citation two which we lovingly call a near jet uh, but it <laughs> turns out it's uh it's just about perfect for a big slow straddle launch chase
0: oh, that's awesome and, and as far as the the crew on a first flight like that, um, how many how many crew do you have on each aircraft um, working the uh, working the flight test?
2: Right. So in uh, on Strat Launch, it, its crew is uh, two pilots and a flight engineer. So that's essentially what we're going to have anytime uh, we go to fly. And then I'll let Zach answer about the chase.
3: Uh, yes. Yeah, so the chase is uh, pilot and co uh per normal, and then we had two photographers and kind of the. Cool thing about scaled is uh, a lot of people wear different hats, and so our photographers are also flight test engineers. So they're uh, they have all of the test cards and the emergency procedures and phone numbers for contingencies and stuff like that. So uh, they're more than just media folks in the airplane, and really helped us out a lot. Actually, one of them's running the sound for this podcast.
1: <laughs> we uh, we here at EAA can relate to people wearing multiple hats, so that's uh, that's good to hear. Um, you know, yeah, the- and on
2: that. On that topic, uh, you know, it was great for uh, for me to have Zach in, in the Chase airplane because he's got such extensive experience on launch that all throughout the profile, he's looking for, you know, when we started doing maneuvers, are we seeing any sort of uh, flutter, unexpected motions on any of the control surfaces, how much the wing's flexing, all these uh, little details that I think if you just, hauled in a pilot off the street and had him fly chase they wouldn't have been able to give that sort of uh, feedback that really uh, helped us in the cockpit uh, have a good feel of what was really happening to the airplane so,
1: oh absolutely i think that's uh, a unique and and as you explained a logical way to do things you know zach for the uh obviously this probably isn't the first priority but for the photo aspect of this flight did you have to find yourself kind of being farther away from an airplane as usual, just to make sure that the photographers could capture the whole thing. I mean, it's not exactly an airplane you can get an entire picture of if you're standing anywhere near it, it would seem.
3: Yeah. And that's, uh, that was actually one of the things that, uh, on the chase side, we spent a lot of time talking about before the flight, because we had done some practice airborne pickups during high speed taxi. And, uh, even as the pilot, like with a full field of view, we can't, the whole airplane doesn't fit in the window. And, uh, We actually uh, brought out uh, George Merritt, who's one of the uh, chase pilots for XB-70, and he came and did like a lunch and learn, and we sort of talked about, you know, big airplane chase strategy, which was cool. And uh, yeah, we ended up being way further away than normal. Uh, And it turns out your muscle memory is to make the airplane you're chasing be a certain size in the window. And by the time a straddle launches, you know, a normal airplane size in the window, you're pretty far away. So, uh, and there was a lot of concern about, you know, weight turbulence, and uh, you know it's the first flight of the airplane. There's always the chance that you know access doors or fairings and stuff could come off, and so uh, we were trying to stay well clear and just just be close enough to add value. Well,
0: wow, that must have been really cool uh, being briefed by a uh, by a member of the uh, the X B seventy test team. That that kind of uh, I guess highlights the the historical gravity of uh, of what you guys were doing. But what was that like?
2: Yeah, I mean Zach set that up. It was a uh, it was a very cool. Uh, lunch and learn. He came out and talked uh, some some great stories about uh, flight tests back in the day with uh, the XB seventy and a few uh, you know nuggets of of things that are were true then and are still true now. Uh, it, it was uh, it was very outstanding.
1: So um, obviously, you know, Evan, you getting to fly uh, straddle launch. Zach, you being so familiar with it and being up in the air with it for this first flight. You know after all the time, all the the detailed work that goes into designing and building something like this. And I'm sure there's a lot we could talk about just in the design and build process, too. But what were your sort of emotions like during this first fight? And obviously, you know, you got to be focused. You got to be locked in with something like this. But maybe even during, maybe after, if it took a while to set in. But what was it like to be involved with something just so monumentous?
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, I've been doing uh, flight tests for a lot of years, so there was a lot of, uh, when we were doing the, the taxi testing, uh, which was spread over a number of months. So we'd go out, we'd test, we'd come back in, do some more work on the airplane, go back out. And uh, so we had this slow buildup. And at the end of it, when we were doing our last points, I, I distinctly remember sitting at the end of the runway, looking at the mountains, it's a beautiful day and thinking this airplane's ready to go. We could just go fly today. Um, so Fast forward to uh, the day of first flight, there we are. But I mean, much like with many things in aviation, you're you're focused on doing your your job correctly, running through the procedures, it's what you've practiced. So first flight day, getting out to the runway, getting all the engines started, we were just running through our standard checklist and then all of a sudden, it was time to go. And Zach was airborne and calling uh, 30 seconds and I guess, all right, it's time to go. Uh, so up till then it, we was, I was really just focused on executing the, uh, the test plan. Uh, once we were airborne, uh, after rotation, the airplane, uh, climbed quite quickly. We're generating all that lift off the, that big wing. And I, I got to admit there was a moment there of just going, wow, it's, it's, this is really flying. It's working. That's really good. <laughs> and, uh. So then we, we just continued on uh, just on trying to focus on all the details of the airplane pretty much until we came back to land. And then it, I gotta tell you, it was really neat coming in for our uh, first our low approach and then our landing, seeing all the people who had uh, parked to the sides of Mojave, just the, uh, the crowds that were out there of uh, folks who, who obviously found out we were airborne and came to uh, watch us land. So, so that was pretty neat. Uh, realizing that, yeah, this is this is a piece of uh, real history, and uh, a lot of people came out to see it.
0: So, Strato Launch is obviously built to carry some pretty heavy payloads, uh, and obviously, you weren't flying it uh, anywhere near its gross weight on the first test flight. It's... Um I mean, it's hard to think of an airplane the size of a, a, a medium-sized building as a uh, as light. But um, did it did, did it feel kind of um, light and almost a little unexpected how uh, how quickly it got off?
2: Um, I I don't think I would ever call this airplane light, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, even when we came back to land. Uh, I mean, we we're still at a, a fairly reasonable fuel weight. Um, it's it's a big airplane and it flies like a big airplane even even without the uh, uh, the rocket payload on it. Uh, however, I, we, we have room to spare. So for instance, on this first flight, uh, we only used a partial power setting, uh, throughout the whole flight for, so for takeoff, we did not go full power. Uh, we just used a partial power setting and, uh, because really the rest is there for, uh, for when we're carrying the big
0: payload. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Um, so, Obviously, this isn't the first time a skilled composites has been involved with a uh, with a space launch um, platform. Um, There was White Knight and White Knight 2. I know you you guys have been involved with uh, with those flight test programs as well, obviously. Um, How does this uh, how does this compare? How did you take lessons from those programs? I mean, I guess now you've been doing this for close to 20 years now between, uh, you know, between the first White Knight and now. Um, What are what are some of the lessons you're able to carry forward?
3: I think this is one for Zach. Yeah, so um, I was also on the the team that did the White Knight 2 uh, uh, and was in the chase plane for White Knight 2's first flight. And I think the uh, the big things that strike me are, um, the we're a lot smarter than we were back then, and we've seen a White Knight 2 fly. And so we, I guess no one was intrinsically worried about, will a two-fuselage airplane work? And For White Knight 2's first flight, it was, you know, it's a way smaller, way simpler airplane, but conceptually it was a lot bigger stretch because we hadn't, you know, White Knight 2 was even different than White Knight 1. And so uh, I think the focus for Strato launch was the uh, more on the system's complexity and the size of the test team and the complexity of the instrumentation. And I think sort of to echo Evans' first flight comments, uh, because the the taxi test buildup was over spread over such a long time and our sim training was so extensive uh the day of first flight to me just felt like a warm glow of being in a band where everybody's really good and you know consistently the whole day we were ahead of the time schedule uh the it takes i don't know like a you know more than a dozen people to move the airplane out and get it on the runway and uh you know all the tug drivers are just clicking away the control room is uh uh you know evan and i came into the program with uh you know, at least a uh, significant test experience, but a lot of the people in the control room were design engineers on the airplane from the beginning. And we got to kind of watch them develop into, you know, one of the best control rooms I've yes. ever seen at the company. And so uh, I think, you know, the on the technical side, the airplane was is kind of a slam dunk. And uh, the really satisfying part is to watch the team come together and just perform, you know, as, as any that we've ever seen ever.
1: I guess that's something interesting I hadn't really thought of before, needing, you know, so many people just to move it in and out of the hangar. You know, what are some of the, and feel free to talk more about the the tug operation that's needed to move an airplane that's wider than I think any's ever been. I think that's the safe, technical, correct way to say it. Um, But just talk about, you know, some of the other challenges with an airplane that's just so big that people might not think about, you know, bigger than just how it uh, even controls in the air.
2: Yeah, I mean, this this part's really hard to describe without, if you could walk in the hangar and see the size of the airplane, then it becomes much easier to explain. But I mean, when the hangar or the airplane's in the hangar, uh, we have scaffolding up to be able to access the uh, the center wing and uh, we can put up scaffolding to get to the other portions of the wing as well. And, and uh, the whole process of getting the doors open, getting the airplane out, tugs attached, getting the airplane out. It is not a thing that you just you know, look out the window in the morning and say, hey, today looks like a good day. Let's pull the airplane out. It is very much a uh, well-scheduled in advance that uh, on Tuesday, we'll take a look, we'll make a weather call. Will the airplane come out, yes or no, then it comes out. Uh, so in that sense, you, you can't just uh, treat it like a regular airplane and say, well, we'll just go pull it out of the hangar and go. Uh, it's, it's really quite a, uh, a process, but our ground crew guys, again, have been working on this, uh, for a while. So they are very good at getting both tugs hooked up. We, we use two tugs to, uh, pull the airplane, one attached on each, uh, fuselage, and they've gotten pretty good at, uh, maneuvering it around and making their turns and, and putting it in the position we need to for, uh, for our operations.
3: Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it, it, it's obvious to us, but may not be obvious to everybody. The airplane uh, fits on the runway just fine, but it doesn't fit on the taxiways. Uh, and so, like, for all the taxi testing, there was no taxi to the end, turn around and go back the other way. It was taxi to the end and then push the airplane backwards the whole length of the runway because there's no, no place to turn around to. And so, uh, yeah, the, the crew chief is sort of like an orchestra conductor on the wireless headsets. And there's, you know, two tug drivers and multiple spotters and people following in trucks with GSE. And so he's sort of like conducting a, an orchestral roadshow. And uh, the the just looking at the tow times to get into various positions uh, over the course of the program is impressive. What used to take three hours, now they can do in like 20 minutes and have yep. all this whole like carny speak, of, <laughs> you know, maneuvering <laughs> challenge and response. And so uh, it's one of the most important or impressive parts of the whole program. Yep.
0: Wow. Yeah, just, I guess it just speaks to the scale of this whole thing that, you, yeah, you have to kind of build up a skill set for just ground maneuvering, you know, with an aircraft, which, I, you know, again, as a GA pilot, you know, most people would think is reasonably trivial. You don't want to whack your wingtip on the hangar door or anything like that, but. Yeah, and yeah. I think
3: the other cool thing I'll say about that is at the beginning, uh, we, you know, conceptually, you can imagine putting two tugs on there uh, and, you know, driving them real careful. Uh, but no one was sure if we would able be able to coordinate the tugs well enough to like not break the airplane. And, uh, you know, there was all kinds of GPS guided autonomous, super tow bar concepts that got thrown around. And I think it's kind of cool that the solution we evolved to is just like really skilled guys. I mean, you know, just Mm -hmm. like there's skilled pilots that are specially trained to fly the thing. The ground crew guys are unique in all the world at this time, which is pretty cool. Jeez.
0: Wow. Um, earlier on, when you're talking about the first flight, you spoke about some of the test points that you did and the test cards that you flew. And, um, I, I had some involvement with the development of our, of the EAA's, uh, flight test manual that we, uh, that we put out last fall for, um, for, uh, home builders. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you developed the test plan and, um, and maybe a little bit about what your test cards look like for an aircraft like that?
2: Uh, well, the, the test plan primarily, uh, developed, uh, for a large extent stent uh, flowed out of uh, the, the training I'd, I'd received. I went through the, uh, the Empire Test Pilot School uh, in the United Kingdom. So I uh, had gone through that formal training while I was in the uh, Air Force, and then had done uh, a number of years flight testing in the Air Force, uh, and then teaching at the, uh, the Test Pilot School here at Edwards. So I, this is part of the curriculum. You talk about how to evaluate uh, basic handling qualities on an airplane, and that's essentially uh, what we were doing. So uh, uh, first, we uh, you know got to where we wanted to be in in the sky, and then for instance in pitch, we would do some uh, open loop loop inputs, a uh, sort of pulse, and then a pitch doublet, to uh, look at how the airplane itself responded. And then once we had a feeling on that, then we'd want to uh, close the loop, if you will, and start uh, actively controlling it as the pilot. So typically that was a, a some sort of capture task where you'd pick a point on the ground or in the sky and i had uh, dots drawn on the uh, windshield as uh, reference points and i would basically just do a series of capture tasks uh building up you know start out nice and smooth and small and then just build up in uh, size and aggressiveness to uh to look at how well uh the airplane could be controlled how precisely uh whether you were having to do a lot of inputs or whether it it was predictable. Uh, so essentially, just looking at, at how well I as the pilot could put the airplane where I needed it to be uh, to, to get an idea of that. And then you do the same in roll, same uh, or with the Dutch roll uh, in terms of the lateral directional
3: uh, components. Yeah, and I think on the, the test card front, the test cards are pretty dense, like it's a lot of pages, but they would probably look like you know, most home builder test cards, uh, you know, all the points have a speed altitude configuration, uh, you know, a task with a tolerance. Uh, I think one of the things that's interesting that Evan chose to do that alleviated a lot of confusion was uh, we integrated the normal procedures into the test cards. And so some airplanes, you know, the, the test card will say, you know, step one, do the before takeoff checklist. And uh, because it's a first flight in uh, uh a limited system function configuration. um, It was way less confusion to just have all the steps from the normal checklist written in the cards uh, than to say, do the normal procedures for this, except for don't do this step, then come back to the cards and then go back. And so I think that's one of the things Evan decided to do earlier on that was simple and I think is a good idea for home builders that are doing a first flight in a, uh, you know, reduced or partial configuration uh, where the checklists aren't totally accurate. It's just way simpler to put it all in the cards for first flight. Yeah, and this uh, this is uh, something I've
2: definitely seen over the years in flight tests that if you're if if you're in this situation where you're you're switching from one uh, you know checklist to another card and then maybe to something else, it seems like maybe that's the easiest way to do it. But every time you're switching, you're adding the uh, the high potential. To, uh, to forget something or come back and you throw in a, a distraction airborne while you're in the middle of that switch and it, it gets really easy to uh, to miss something and uh, get out of sequence. So it's always been my, my opinion that it's best to just take the time and get it all as sequential as possible in one source so that you're not trying to uh, flip between pages, especially if you're in a, uh, you know, especially for a you know single seat
3: or uh, or limited crew environment. Yeah, and if we've got a control room of 30 people, it's way easier for people to get lost if you're changing yeah. between binders and flipping back and forth. Yep. Yeah,
0: no, that's very smart. Yeah, we we have um, kind of generic procedures on our cards because we want it to be as accessible as possible for uh, for anybody who wants to use the uh, the the program. But uh, it's very that's very good advice for home builders if they want to go the extra mile as far as getting everything wired. Uh and uh, and all that. Of course, we also recommend that home builders uh get a little bit of transition training uh before they fly uh uh their aircraft for the first time, which obviously wasn't possible for you. But actually, um was there any kind of simulation well, that you were able to do or anything like that? Yeah, let me comment
2: on that yeah. because uh, we we did have a uh, uh a simulator that that we had. So obviously that's something uh most home builders wouldn't have, but for a uh program of this size it was a must. Um but uh, yeah, if you can go out and get some sort of flight experience, you, sometimes you want to think about well, what's going to be the hardest thing to land about this the plane you're you're looking at, and for Strad launch, uh, part of it was the the offset position, and so we actually would practice doing our landings uh, to that offset uh, position on the runway, but also it was just that we were going to have this this basket of. Uh, degraded or uh, handling qualities that weren't quite what you want them to be uh, in pitch, roll and yaw. So we actually went to a company called uh, CalSpan Corporation that has uh Lear that they use as in-flight simulators so they can change the way the airplane flies while you're in flight. And we had them, uh, they didn't do a, an exact model of the Strat launch, but we had them get close uh, so that it, the, we, the Learjet then flew, uh, far more similar to the Strad launch than it did to a regular Learjet. And we went and did a, a number of uh, uh, approaches and touch and go landings in their Learjet. And that just helped us. It wasn't necessarily that we could take that experience and go right into Strad launch, but it just gave us recency of flying a unusual airplane that we'd never flown before, that really made us have to work and pay close attention uh, to what we were doing in, in the landing phase. And that's exactly what we had to do for strata launch. So it is always a a great practice if you can to go out and fly something different. uh, That's, that's a new experience for you just to get you used to that, that feeling of, all right, this is all new to me. How do I learn to adapt to it? Uh, Because that's what you're going to be faced on your first flight.
3: Yeah. And I think we're in a lucky position where, you know, we're, full-time pilots. So we're, we're current all the time and we're just getting specific training for a specific task. And I, I, you know, as a home builder myself, uh, I know that you, when you're in the build phase, you're not flying nearly as much. And so you're not at your peak proficiency when you get ready to do your first flight. And so that's especially important if you're not flying regularly going into the first flight.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and just a, a, a quick plug for, um, uh, for amateur builders out there is, uh, advisory circular, Oh shoot! I'm on the I'm on the spot right now. It's not 9089, but there is an advisory circular that we worked on with FAA uh, that kind of bucketizes aircraft performance and um, and, and analogous aircraft that um, that that um, home builders or prospective second owners of aircraft uh, can um, can avail themselves up for for transition training.
3: Yeah, we'd be interested to see what the chart says for Stratolon. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I'm worried this might be a stupid question, but. Is there anything, uh, Evan, that you've flown of the more conventional aircraft out there that has any sort of a comparison to strata launch? Or is there is it just sort of a whole different ballpark?
2: Um, No, I would say it's it's similar to to most sort of large airliner types. Um, So, you know, it it just you know, you're not going to come in and and do a a real tight uh, closed pattern. Uh, overhead landing with it, you're going to set yourself up for a controlled uh, straight in approach, nice and stabilized to come in for landing and uh, just kind of come in and, and do it smooth and, and stable is the way to go. So, um, you know, a lot of my experience was, was with uh, much smaller fighter type airplanes. Um, but again, uh, having seen a lot of uh, other uh, airplanes with with uh, less desirable characteristics, you you just get used to that and learn to adapt to it. Uh, But I would say it was very much like a a large type uh, heavy airplane. Nothing uh, unusual, different from, uh, you know, a 737 or a 747, something like that.
1: Gotcha. That certainly makes sense. And then you know, it feels like strata launch sort of dominating the, the conversation right now. I mean, this conversation included, and for good reason. I mean, it's a fascinating, impressive aircraft. But Scaled, it feels like, is always working on a whole lot of cool things at one time. Is there anything else that you guys are currently uh, are working on there that you can talk about right now?
2: Well, I mean, we, uh, we continue to have uh, work with uh, the Proteus. It's been a, a workhorse for... Uh... 20 years now and uh, uh, model 401 is another one of our uh, new airplanes that's uh, doing some good work and just like you say uh, we've got a variety of other uh, very interesting uh, projects which uh, we're running so it, it's really neat for me. I've only been here with scaled for about a year and a half and and coming here really is a, uh, a tremendous experience not only it's a small company so it's like a family but it's also frankly, just a lot of uh, people who love airplanes, who talk airplanes all the time, who love to be around airplanes, and uh, very smart, very creative. So, uh, you know, it's hard to uh, not have a group like that and have people uh, coming up with uh, ideas left and right to uh, to pursue.
3: Yeah, and I would say, uh, talking about other things that are going on, uh, we owe Evan a congratulations, he's got, uh... Oxygen mask marks on his face because he just came out of a check ride in Proteus just like m- mere <laughs> minutes ago. So, and he's smiling, so
0: it looks like it went well. well he's had a more excited, exciting day at the office, and I think uh, either of us have had. So, uh, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, that's that's Thank pretty
1: you. fair to say. I think. Um, you know, you you talked about there, uh, Evan, that sort of there's that spirit of of innovation. I think that's something you know, uh, EAA and Scaled Composites have in common. I know our, our Beth Stanton wrote a feature story about this last year. You know, can you both kind of talk about how that spirit of just innovating and sort of pushing the envelope, obviously in a very safe way, nothing nothing risky, I don't think, but just seeing how far you can go drives everything that happens over there at Scaled.
2: Well, I, again, from, uh, from my viewpoint as a, as a relative newcomer, scaled uh, Scaled's a unique place that, you know, most uh, companies or large organizations, if uh, if you're a young employee and you've got a really cool idea and you go to someone or stand up in a meeting and say, hey, I've got a cool idea, you're going to get a bunch of stares and get told to sit down. And that's not the way we do it here. Uh, but at Scaled, it's, it's almost the reverse. Everyone goes, oh, cool idea. Tell us about it. And uh, if it's worth developing, people are going to jump in and point you the right direction and uh, really help build that. I, in fact, I would say, you know, most, most big organizations tend to be focused on whatever their product is, and they're not really looking as their primary purpose to innovate, whereas really the scaled culture is, hey, let's look for this new innovative thing. Sometimes it's a big new project. Sometimes it's a, it's a smaller thing. But everyone is encouraged to uh, to be creative. Uh, think out of the box. Anytime, uh, you know, a problem would come up on Strat launch, we're always very careful not to say, well, here's a problem. So fix it this way. Uh, the, the scaled answer is, here's the problem. Tell, you know, come up with some creative solutions. And uh, frequently, those were much better than anything that, that I had thought of uh, to, to get where we wanted to go.
3: Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, clearly a lot of what's going on at Scaled goes all the way back to Bert and the, you know, the routine aircraft factory, home built, and, you know, going all the way back to the very big and Bert's first plans built airplane, uh, talking to him about how that worked was really, there's not a lot of design reference for, you know, canard airplanes, and so he just started from basic principles, you know, uh, draw a picture of the airplane, the wing goes here, the lift goes here, the trim force comes from here, and you you don't convince yourself that a concept's going to work through comparison to other progress. You figure out where to start from basic principles and then work from that. And I think uh, you know that's sort of baked into the engineering and the fabrication culture at scaled where it's not not necessarily what's everybody doing, but if we roll back to the most fundamental nuggets of our education, you know, what building blocks can we stack up to achieve this goal and uh, you know the the other thing that rolls uh, really nicely into that is uh, in the experimental development world we have a lot more requirement over our uh, control over what our requirements are and the name of the game pretty much anytime we do something really innovative looking is because we figured out a creative way not just to do the engineering and the build but to roll the requirements back uh, to something really simple so you know Proteus is a good example it's this you know, uh, super high altitude, uh, tandem wing, super funny looking airplane that's set a bunch of records, uh, but it's also really simple. It doesn't have a yaw damper. It doesn't have flaps. And, you know, straddle launch is also an example of uh, the reason that we were able to build the airplane in, you know, less than a quarter century is because we rolled back a whole bunch of requirements that, you know, big prime aerospace companies might not have even thought were uh, were not required. And so it's kind of a balance of, aggressively whittling back requirements and then sort of starting from basic principles, I think.
0: And, and you mentioned a little bit about uh Burt Rutan and, uh, and kind of the home building legacy uh, that, that led to uh scale composites today. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the, um, the relationship that EAA has had with, uh, with scaled over the years, obviously from, uh, from the early days, a lot of our members are, you know, have very fond memories of, of, of Burt giving forums at air Venture, continues to today whenever he's uh, able to come. Uh, uh, you know, on on through some of the the record-setting years with Voyager and stuff like that, Spaceship One, and then on to today?
3: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, uh, on the internal side, uh, as an employee, uh, it's real hard to get anything done during AirVenture because a disproportionate amount of employees are gone to Oshkosh. (laughs) Uh, A couple years ago, we we did a big scaled composites roadshow and came to AirVenture with Proteus and did a big recruiting trip, and I think one of the cool things, uh, for us is we, we did, uh, some like hiring directly from the Oshkosh crowd and they're, uh, they're like the best slam dunk fits we could find. I mean, it's, it takes years coming through, you know, randomly submitted resumes to get the, you know, handful of people that we got from Oshkosh. Oh, six people, seven people we got from Oshkosh. And so they're not just good fits, they're like all-star performers. And so I think that kind of, kind of speaks well to the cultural fit between the two organizations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I really do think, um, you know, we have a whole section in the museum uh, dedicated to the Rattan brothers and, uh, and, and scale composites. And uh, uh, it's just, it's really neat to have, uh, you know, a company like, like yours that, you know, has been very intertwined, I think with the, uh, with, with kind of the, the direction of uh, uh, of EAA and the home building movement over the years. And, uh, and just to kind of see, it, it's really the prime example in my mind of um, of why home building is so important to innovation and in aviation in this country. I mean, so much of um, of what's made its way into the quote unquote mainstream uh, has come from uh, from home building over the years, and that's just uh, that's just amazing.
3: Yeah, and I think the the what resonates most I think about that is you know the thing about being a home builder is you're you're like a, a you know one or few people like aerospace company rolled into yourself. So you get to see the business side and the fab side and the flight test and the systems and the wiring. And I think that's one of the things that makes Scaled kind of unique is, uh, you know, we were talking about people wearing multiple hats, but we, you know, we end up with engineers that kind of cross over into some of the business planning and we end up with fabricators crossing over into engineering. And the, historically, the cadence of new projects has been fast enough to where. You know, people get to see multiple project cycles and their perspective on where their particular job fits into the kind of global goal of the company uh, really mirrors kind of the personal home building experience of starting from scratch and, you know, making this whole system and then operating it kind of, you know, by yourself is uh, uh, there's a lot of symmetry there.
0: Well, it sounds like a very, a very fun, and exciting place to work. I mean, it's, uh, uh, and I think we're fortunate to have kind of a, a similar spirit at EAA in the fact that we're, uh, we cover a lot of things. You know, um, uh, you, you know, I think Ty and myself both, uh, yeah, wear a lot of hats um, on both the aviation and, uh, and and our professional sides, and that's um, that's where we re- we really value that here. So, uh, Evan and Zach, I think it's um, we've come to the end of this episode, but we really thank you for, um, for coming on and uh, sharing a little bit of the story of the, uh, of, of the first flight straddle launch, but also your, your professional insight into, uh, into flight testing. Um, just a couple of episode notes. I, I did look it up real quick. The AC I was trying to refer to before, that was 9109. That's uh, Transition to Unfamiliar Aircraft. AC-9089 is the uh, amateur-built and ultralight flight test manual. Uh, You can also get our flight test manual, EAA's flight test manual, uh, for $18 for members uh, from our online store, uh, our gift shop, and it will also be for sale during AirVenture. We'll have some forums on that also, so look for that programming. Um, And with that, Ty, thank you very much for uh, stepping out from uh, behind the booth and onto the mic. And... um, And again, thank you, Evan and Zach, and uh, we'll see you next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot.